Let's open the Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 1. And I want to do a little bit of reading tonight in Hebrews chapter number 1 and chapter number 2. And uh, then what I would like to do, and I was praying about how to... How to do this? Because sometimes, if I could just be, if I could just be transparent with you, um, sometimes I am reading in preparation for a message that that I'll be preaching, and I'm there's just so much there, and and then I have pity on all of your all souls because I know there's a reason that stereotypes are there. It's because many times they're true, and there's a certain stereotype about preachers, that they're long-winded. And it's because that's true. And the reason we're long-winded, at least some of us, I can't speak for all of us, but the reason that some of us are long-winded is because there is so much that we want to say. And um, sometimes I just have a hard time just like cutting to the chase. So like really, um, if, if, I, if I wanted to, I could boil the entire message tonight down to four words. Now I'm not going to, but if I, but if I wanted to, I could. Do you want those four words now? So that if you have to go use the restroom or if you have a heart attack and have to go to the hospital or I hope that doesn't happen. That way you've got it. Okay, I'll go ahead and give them to you now. That way, if you find the rest of this particularly boring or, or just like doesn't grab your attention, then you'll have what you need and you go home. So here it is. Here are the four words that you need to know from tonight. And they come from Hebrews chapter number two, verse number nine. So here is the message in its entirety without any of the details. But we see Jesus. Okay, now let's just say that together. So if you zone out between now and about 8.30-ish, that you got what you need. So let's all say that together, those four words. But we see Jesus. That's the message. That's it. That's it. But there's a lot. There's a lot to that. And I can't cover it all, but what I would like to do is, is read a number of verses. And, and I, I pray that this is not boring or taxing, but then I want to come back and just show you the incredible doctrine that is in these verses leading up to chapter 2, verse 9. I'm inclined to ask you if that's okay that I do it, but since it doesn't matter what you say, I'm going to do it. Um, is that okay? All right, now we all feel good. Let's go ahead and stand because we are about to read the message that God has given to us. Unmanipulated by me, unexpounded by me, but I pray that as we read these words that the Holy Spirit does what the Bible says only the Holy Spirit can do is that he will illuminate these words and only these words, these words in your heart so that as we come back and examine some of these verses leading up to chapter 2 verse 9 that it is vivid in front of you. Here we go beginning in verse number 8 of chapter 1. But unto the Son he saith. 
Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which, the, to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Father, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. And if nothing else is understood here tonight, I pray that you would draw the attention of your people to the face of your son. That we would be in your presence and seeing you in all of your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A few things I'd like to observe quickly, if I can quickly, in chapter number one. I told you that this passage is so doctrinally rich that it is very difficult for me to just go from one verse to the next to the next because it is expensive 
exploding with earth-shattering truth about Christ, about the Father, about angels, about our redemption and our relationship to Him, about our future use in the kingdom which is to come. So if I could just point a few things out. First off, look at what we see concerning the deity of Jesus Christ in verse number 8. If you are ever in a conversation with someone who says that Jesus was just a man and does not believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus was God, there are a lot of places in Scripture that you can go, but I'm telling you where I'm going. If I'm speaking with a Jehovah's Witness, or if I'm speaking with someone who just believes in a historical Jesus, but not a divine Jesus, I'm coming to Hebrews chapter number one, and first thing I'm going to do is tell them who is speaking. And here's who's speaking. Verse number five, it says, for unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son. So beginning in verse number five, the one that's speaking is the father. And the father is not appointing any angels as his son. And that's the whole point. And as the father continues to speak, he says this in verse number eight, but unto the son, that is the father speaking to Jesus for unto the son, he saith, thy throne, whose throne? Jesus's throne. And look how he's referred to next. Thy throne, Oh God is forever. This is the only verse in the Bible that I'm aware of where the father is talking to the son and the father says, you're God. I could go even farther. For thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Listen to this, verse number nine. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, meaning the Father as well, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy, fellow, above thy fellows. Look at verse 10. And thou... Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. And we learn that the person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost that laid those foundations in Colossians chapter one, guess who it says it, it was done, done by? By the Son, Jesus Christ. We learn in Hebrews one that Jesus, the one that died on the cross, the one whom we worship, the one who purchased our salvation, Jesus is God. In verse number 10, we learn about creation, that it was not an accidental um, occurrence, a, a colossal explosion, a big bang, if you will, but instead that it was spoken by the words of God. For in verse 10, we learn that thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. In verse number 12, we learn about the end of the earth and the immutability or the unchangeable nature of God. Uh, look with me at verse number 12. Concerning the works of thy hands, concerning this creation, verse number 11 says, they shall perish. Look, this earth, it's going to burn up. It's going to dissolve away. It's going to be melted with fervent heat, the Bible says. This earth is not eternal. Side note, since this earth isn't eternal, let's not live for this earth. Amen. Amen. They shall perish, but thou remainest. Just let those words sink in. Thou remainest. 
I love this next phrase. They shall all wax old as doth a garment and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up. And I just picture the Lord taking creation like it's this old vesture, this old garment and just deciding, you know, I'm just going to have to fold this thing up and put it away. That's verse number 12. In verse number 13, we see not just the immutability of God and and the end of this earth, but we see the supremacy of Christ. Verse number 13, but to which the angel said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies uh, thy footstool. No, he didn't say it to any of the angels, but I'll tell you who he did say it to. He said it to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the supreme being. He is the one that is king of kings and he is the one that is Lord. Lord of lords. And when we come and see Jesus, remember we're heading to verse number nine. When we see Jesus, we are seeing the immutable, unchangeable God. We are seeing the one that created everything you've ever laid your eyes on. He breathed it into existence. When we see Jesus, we are looking at the one who's going to fold up creation like a vesture, like a garment and put it away for he's going to make all things new. And when we see Jesus, we We see the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the preeminent one. He is the powerful one. He is the potentate. He is the permanent one. He is not going anywhere. He is the eternal God. That's the Jesus that we should see. And God help us if we start looking towards Jesus and minimizing him the way that so many people do. And I'm not going to go off on a tirade, but if I could just caution you about two things. First off, I want to caution you as you see Jesus. Yes, he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Yes, he is our brother in God for we are joint heirs with Christ and we're going to come back to that. So there is a closeness that we have with Jesus. Just as the disciple John rested on Jesus's bosom, there's an intimacy there. But in that intimate moment, please, let's never forget that he is still high and holy. The almighty God who was before all things and after all things and is eternal in the heavens. God help us if we minimize Jesus. The second error, though, is just as bad as the first. Is to think that there has to be distance between you and Jesus. For he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own put distance between them and him. The Bible says he came to seek, to seek and to save that which is lost. I don't have time, but if you were to go through the remainder of this chapter, you'll learn that he put on flesh. He was made in the likeness of men. Why? So that he could have communion with man and so that man could have communion with God. So yes, we ought to guard our hearts from seeing him as a small Jesus. He is high and he is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. But in the same time, he is a God who is at hand and nearby. And if there's anything between you and Jesus, it can be removed by the blood of his sacrifice and you can come boldly before that throne of grace. 
In verse number 14, as we see Jesus, we learn that there's these ministering spirits, these angels, for they are not all ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? It's speaking of angels that are sent to minister to those who are saved. Your there's... There are several reasons that we don't worship angels. The first one is that angels aren't God. And the only one that deserves our worship is God. The second reason that we do not worship angels is that we are not sent to minister to angels. But angels were sent by Christ to minister to us. That's what this verse is saying. And we don't come into this sanctuary to worship angels or to magnify angels. But could we just for a moment, as we see Jesus, be reminded that yes, he has died for our sins. But he has also sent these ministering spirits, these angels to help minister and to care for us and to watch over us. Some people have asked me. I say, Pastor Jared, do you believe in guardian angels? I don't know if I have one that's assigned to me. And if I do, I feel really sorry for that guy. <laughs> I mean, really sorry. I can only imagine my poor little guardian angel. You know, when I get those orders for Iraq, he's like, oh, great. <laughs> the mortars, I'm going to have to guide through the air away from this guy. As I volunteer for those orders to go to airborne school, and the angel's like, I got wings. He doesn't need them. <laughs> and then here comes the call to preach. And that angel's saying, Please, not a Baptist church. Please, not a Baptist church. Them are mean. You better watch it. My guardian angel, come get you. I don't know if we have a designated guardian angel, but I do know that we have angels that guard. We have ministering spirits. Now, I'm not here to magnify them tonight because if we magnify them, we're missing the point that they are sent by Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we're reminded of how much He loves and how much He cares for us i got to move quickly now through this next portion because when we come to chapter number 2, we have this idea of these angels, these ministering spirits set forth under the authority of Jesus. And then we have man right here in the midst of it. And as much as I would like to take some time to, oh, I'll take just a bit of time to look at verse number 1. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. In other words, like pay so close attention to what we have heard from God's word and the command that he's given because we've got these ministering spirits. We've got Jesus who is God who has come in the flesh and died for our sins and is the creator of all things and will fold up and end all things. And he has given us a home in his, um, in his glory and in his plan. And he says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard 
lest at any time we should let them slip. Oh, could you imagine if God were to come to you tonight through his own voice, through the power of his Holy Spirit, or through a ministering spirit, an angel, and reveal truth to you? Oh, we ought to hold it close. We ought to heed it. We ought to write it down. We ought to remember it. I mean, if God walked through those doors and sat down right in front of you and began to speak, Oh, may we heed these words, lest any of them slip. Well, newsflash, those words are sitting in your lap right now. The precious word of God, they're inscribed on this this screen that we might see them, that we might understand them. So when we see Jesus, when we see Jesus, we need to be reminded that Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not silent. Oh, but he speaks. And he speaks to be heard. He speaks to be learned of and to be understood. And then we have verse number two. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. In other words, like if an angel spoke it, and that word is steadfast, then consider this, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and in that speech that was steadfast, that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense for reward. In other words, when the word came and there was this warning given that every sin has a wage and has a payment and has a punishment, then we better listen up, which is why verse 3 is written, for how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You know, judgment is coming if we don't receive Christ, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The Lord spoke about this and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And then verse four, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So God has done, has gone. You say, well, well, how do we know that God has spoken? Well, has he not brought miracles and signs and wonders by the prophets recorded in his word and sent angels to minister and the Holy Spirit to indwell and he's established it in the heavens and, and then we get so, so foggy and so confused because we can't see him face to face. Look, friend, Lift up your eyes and just look and see Jesus. He's right here on this page. Okay, now I really need to get moving. Then this text quotes some verses out of Psalms. Now, I was, I was planning on going this, this whole doctrinal treatise uh, about the conclusion of verse number 8, but I'm going to avoid doing that. But I, I do want you to look at this. In verse number 4, the Bible says, God also bearing them witness both signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. And then verse 5, For unto the angels hath He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, and he's speaking of the psalmist, saying, and here is Psalm 8 quoted, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? 
In verse 7 it says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. In verse 8 it says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put, he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But I want you to notice this very last phrase in verse number 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. I could spend a great deal of time talking about who the hymn is right there. There's basically two interpretations. One say that that hymn is speaking of Christ. And I have no opposition against someone who would say, well, that's speaking of, of Jesus Christ. However, that's not my understanding of this interpretation. This is Psalm 8 being quoted. And we learned that in Psalm 8, when it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? That is speaking of mankind. Uh, you may be familiar with the passage. It says, For when I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Isn't that pretty clear that it's not speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's speaking of mankind, of humanity. The verse continues on and it says, "In the Son of Man that thou visitest him. And I do recognize that that term Son of Man is a term of deity that the Lord Jesus Christ uses as a reference to Daniel. But I also know this, that the term Son of Man is also a term of humanity and is used throughout the Scripture in other places to refer not to deity but to humanity. In fact, Jesus Christ himself to advantage of this ambiguity for just as the Lord could speak a parable and those that had a spiritual ear could hear and those that did not have a spiritual ear could not hear as he spoke in parables and some could receive the truth and others it would be blinded to them and so he would sometimes use that phrase son of man that those without faith would think he's referring to a son of man and those that with faith would realize that he's referring to the son of man the Lord Jesus Christ. So it does have both meanings, but as we read on in Psalm 8, it says this, Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Boy, that sounds like maybe he's speaking of the heavenly kingdom, but he's not. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. And what's that referring to? That's referring all the way back to what man is supposed to have dominion of in God's kingdom. Now we're about to make a little bit of a, of a leap. We're wading into some, some deeper waters. I'm going to slow down for just a moment so you can follow with me. So if Psalm 8 is not referring to Jesus, but it's saying that when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of? Notice this pronoun, him. Then when I look all the way back in Hebrews, and I see this verse being quoted, this passage being quoted from Psalm 8, and I believe it, it needs to remain in its proper context, that the him is speaking of humanity, of mankind. So when I come to verse number 5, it says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak? But in one certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Notice the consistency of that word him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him, that thou madest 
Him, that's mankind, lower than the angels. Thou crownedest Him, mankind, with glory and honor. And it set Him, mankind, over the works of thy hands. This is just a quotation of Psalm 8 referring to mankind and the, the work that they had in Genesis. But then it's not just the work they had in Genesis. For when that end time comes and the Lord comes back and establishes His kingdom on earth, we learn in the book of Revelation that when the Lord reigns on this earth, who reigns with Him? Not over Him, but under His authority. Purchased by Him. For even Jesus Christ says before He ascends on high that He has all authority given to Him. All power is given me in heaven and earth. And says, go ye therefore. So we know that all power is given unto Jesus. But then what does Jesus do? He gives that power unto man. And that power is especially revealed in those last times where we will rule with Him. In fact, in Revelation chapter number 20, it says that when He comes back, when those thousand years are about to transpire here on this earth, uh, that we will reign with him a thousand years. And I believe that that's a correlation to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 25 when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So who is the him in Hebrews chapter number two? I believe that that him is speaking of mankind and the role that we will one day be able to fulfill on this earth. Now, I realize that, whoa, we just waded through some interesting things there, and you're more than welcome. There is so much I'd love to share about that, but we're going to run out of time, so I won't. But what it brings me to is this conclusion about verse number 8. Remember, we're heading to verse number 9, looking to Jesus. But what it tells me about verse number 8 is that there are some things that the Lord wants to do in us, and with us that have not been accomplished yet. And because they haven't been accomplished yet, we can't see them. Look at the close of verse number 8. But now we see not yet all things put under Him. There's a work that God is doing that we can't see. And that's why God gives us His Word, because there are some things that He wants us to see. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus robed in glory and in His majesty. God wants us to see the Son upon the throne. God wants us to see Jesus in all things and in all of life's circumstances, in all of the difficulties that the wickedness of this world can throw at us, in the uncertainty of this world that can take place in our lives. God wants us to see Jesus. That's why we come to the close of verse number 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Verse number 9. But, 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 but we see 
Jesus. And this is what should make the life of the believer so much different. This is what should give us peace past all understanding because we can only understand the things that we see. Oh, I see the despair. I see the death. I see the cancer. I see the treatments. I see the bills coming due. I see the uncertainty of my job. I see my children walking away from the Lord. I see all of this wickedness surrounding me, but I'm telling you, there are some things that we do not see and we cannot see, and it is not supposed to be those things which command our response, but instead, it is supposed to be the fact that in all of those things, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. We see Jesus that rules over all those things. So now I'd like to just walk you through three things that we ought to not be distracted with, but instead that we can see Jesus in. And I'll go quickly. The first one is this, that number one, there is injustice. There is. There is injustice. Look at verse number nine. But we see Jesus. You want to talk about the most unjust thing to ever happen to Jesus? Who was made a little lower than the angels. The word justice is this idea that there is a a proper balance. In other words, that which is heavy and weighty um, receives the reward of that which is heavy and weighty. That which is high and holy is is considered high and holy. Uh, That which is done with great labor and work receives the rewards due to that which is done with labor and work. And we live in an unjust, unfair, condemning society, don't we? And the fact of the matter is sometimes that that false balance feels so spiteful against us. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11 verse number 1 that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. And we are so apt to be consumed by grief, by bitterness, by by anger... When injustice is done to us, it is so easy for us to complain about not getting what we deserve. It is so easy to see the favorable treatment of everybody else and yet look into the mirror and realize that nobody treats us the same way that everybody else gets treated. Uh, we can so easily look at other people's social media and see, oh, they've, they've got it made and everybody's commenting and everybody's liking and everybody's posting and re- retweeting their stuff, but, but nobody does that for me. And, and we can f- begin to feel like there's this injustice done against us. And I'm telling you, that feeling can be like stepping into a prison and closing the door. Because when we start perceiving that there is just constant injustice done to us, it, it, it can rule our minds. And the most innocent comments and phrases can be, can be taken as the most insulting statements. So they're just not treating me the way that I deserve. And this is the most dangerous part about it. Is it causes our vision to be focused on ourselves. Well, I deserve this. How come they didn't treat me that way? Well, everybody else was, was applauded and lauded, but, but me, my name was never spoken. 
And it's like a, it's like a trap that the devil wants to put us in. Look, there is injustice. And the reality is that, that sometimes we can feel like injustice has been done to us and, and it really hasn't. But the reality is sometimes we are treated poorly. We are treated unjustly. Sometimes we are criticized for things that we didn't do. And sometimes we are not given the due reward of our labors. Hey, sometimes that happens and we can choose to put our eyes on that or we can see Jesus for Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels or as I like to read out of Philippians chapter number two he says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God remember how we read the form of God eternal in the heavens, the Father calling him God, the Father calling him Lord, the Bible describing how he's going to fold up this creation and put it away, how the Bible tells us that he's eternal in the heavens. And Philippians says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Reality check. There are going to be times where you are treated unjustly. And you can dwell on that all you like, but it is a bitter pit of despair and quite frankly sometimes there's really no solution for it in this life or when there is injustice we can see Jesus because it was the injustice that was done to Jesus this God who became in the likeness of men that purchased our redemption and I know that sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing when it feels so unkind and when it's so hurtful and we feel so alone and so abused and so downright taken advantage of. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And Jesus was able to take the darkest day in all of history when Christ was crucified, when righteousness became sin, and to use that to give salvation to all mankind. So yes, the close of verse number eight, but now we see not yet all things. And sometimes in the midst of your pain and agony and abuse and attack, you feel like, where is God? Look, just admit that there are things that we can't see, but we can see Jesus. And let's lift our eyes to him. The second thing that I notice that we will see is that there is suffering. And you will see it. There is suffering. There's suffering all over this world. There's suffering on just about every single pew in this sanctuary. Some of you are nervous because you feel fine. <laughs> Hope he's not prophesying. There's suffering in every heart in here. 
Maybe not in this present moment, but you know what it's like to feel lost. You know what it's like to feel attacked. You know what it's like to feel accused. You know what it's like to be in the hospital with uncertainty. You know what that's like. And suffering is always going to be present in this world. And when I look to Jesus, I notice that it's present with Him too. Verse number 9, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Notice the end of verse number 10, that he might make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. At the close of verse number 8, but now we see not, yet all things put under him. But you will see suffering. You will see suffering and there will not be an end of it until we leave this earth. Until that song that we open the service with becomes a reality. And we fly away and we enter into the glories of that mansion. And we're there in his presence. Until that day we will see suffering. And we can choose to focus on it. We can choose to dwell on it. Or we can choose to see Jesus. For 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Remember what I said about verse number 8. That there is a work that God is doing that is not yet revealed in front of our eyes. But it is ongoing with his hands. And that's the same thing that 1 Peter 5 is saying. 1 Peter 5.10. Study it out for yourself if you don't believe me. And here's what I'm saying. Is that throughout the Bible there's a consistent. This isn't the only place you find it. And in 1 Peter 5.10, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory. There's the calling. There's the purpose. There's the work of God that he wants to do in us. And he's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And then the next phrase is this. After that ye have suffered a while. I'm glad that it says after that ye have suffered a while. You know what that means? The suffering's going to end. It's going to end. And when it does end, you will learn that after that you have suffered a while, he'll make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. 1 Peter 5.10 And when suffering shows up, don't be confused or distracted by its sharp teeth or its gnawing pain. But if you can move those distractions to the side, you'll notice behind that is one called Jesus. We might not understand why that suffering is there presently, but I can tell you that behind it, maybe not caused by the Lord, but certainly used by the Lord, is the work of Jesus Christ. Quickly, I I move to the next, and I'll just mention this so that you can be mindful of it. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus even when there is injustice, who is made a little lower than the angels. But we see Jesus even when there is suffering for the suffering of death. And we see Jesus even when there is death. I'm just going to mention this quickly. But we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. 
For yes, there is sorrow in parting, but that parting is just for a little while. And at every funeral, we should see Jesus. In every hospice house, we should see Jesus. In every cemetery, we should see Jesus. At every time that you hear about death looming and the depravity of man, we should see Jesus because he has overcome death. He has defeated death, that last foe. And he has established that there is eternal life for all who receive him as their savior and yes many will reject him but every time I go through a cemetery I think that there are some who have rejected and need Jesus but in this heart there is eternal life oh but we see Jesus even in death I hasten on Oh, but we see Jesus when there is death. We see Jesus when there is suffering. We see Jesus when there is injustice. And we see Jesus, and I'll close with this, when there is uncertainty. I'm not going to belabor this because I have preached along these lines very recently. But it seems to be needed in the church. Verse number 8, when it closes with that phrase, that, but, but now we see not yet all things put under Him. Means that right now our vision is obstructed and obscured. And there are some things that we're just not going to be able to understand. We're not going to be able to see them clearly. But when we come to those things, when uncertainty arrives, that's when we need to see Jesus. And I think about, I think about the children of Israel as they wandered in that wilderness, led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God never gave them a map. In fact, if you study their journey from Egypt to the promised land, if I gave you a map, you would never have chosen their route. Well, some of you may have. (laughs) If you were to take their route and put it into Google, that precious blue line would have never gone all the way over to the east and up and wandered and found its way uh, through Moab and across the Jordan. It would have gone right up the coast But yet what they could see, they didn't have a map, but what they could see was that pillar of fire. That pillar of fire. And as long as they could keep that pillar of fire in the forefront of their vision, they didn't need anything else. They could put all their confidence in where God was leading. When you come to these stages of life, where there is injustice, where there is uncertainty, where there is suffering, where there is death, and you get so distracted by the turmoil of those things. Don't live like everybody else lives, but we, we, the believers in Christ, we, the faithful in Christ Jesus, we don't see those things. We see Jesus. And that's our marching orders. That's why we have peace when there is no peace. That's why we have joy in turmoil because we see Jesus.
Let's fix our eyes upon him.